We live in a world filled with microorganisms that can threaten our public health. But thanks to vaccines, we can become immune to many otherwise dangerous, even deadly diseases. Where a medication might be lowering overall response to microorganisms, vaccines are different because they elicit a very specific response to a specific microorganism. On today's show, learn how vaccines protect us and save lives ours and our children's. Vaccines have saved millions of lives in the U.S. and around the world. The benefit is enormous. Vaccines prevent real diseases, and these diseases definitely harm kids. But if you balance the risk and the benefits, it comes out in favor of the benefit. We're learning about vaccinations inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? How a tiny microorganism in the form of a bacteria or virus can plague the health of a nation or an entire planet. But that's what we're facing with COVID-19. Illness is a fact of life, but it doesn't always have to be. Through research, vaccinations are developed to give us immunity against many, often deadly diseases. So what exactly are vaccinations? How do they work? And is it safe for us to be vaccinated? Let's ask an expert. Dr. Joseph Barbieri is a professor, Department of Microbiology and Immunology, and director of the Medical Scientist Training Program at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Barbieri first explains, in their simplest form, what vaccines are. Vaccines are parts of microorganisms that are in themselves not toxic or have been inactivated either chemically or genetically, that when administered to us, we recognize it as foreign and we make an immune response to it. There's a common misconception that microorganism ingredients in them make vaccines toxic, but he assures us they're not. The reality is that most of the components that are used to make a vaccine are not toxic. Those that are toxic have been inactivated, and then when they're administered, they become immunogenic, and we make these immune responses to them. So how exactly do vaccinations work in protecting us from diseases? Dr. Barbieri walks us through the process. When we're born, we develop an immune system that can recognize foreign material. And those are either B cells or T cells. 
they can bind those particles and that causes them to make antibodies and those antibodies will bind those foreign particles and neutralize them. Andy says equally important is that there's a memory component because what we're doing is initially responding to a foreign material, the vaccine, but then what we also do is we make a population of B cells stored in our body And the next time we see that antigen, we rapidly make a very large amount of these antibodies, and that allows us to respond very rapidly to an infection that we might not have seen for 10 years or even longer. What makes vaccinations different from other medications? He says it's mostly their level of specificity. It's really targeting an individual antigen where a medication might be involved in lowering our overall response to microorganisms, for example. The vaccines are really different because they elicit a very specific response to a specific microorganism. Next, we asked Dr. Barbieri to explain how vaccines are developed and approved. As far as the development, we would start with an unknown pathogen like COVID-19, study the various components, purify those components, and then we immunize, say, mice. And we'll see if they make antibodies that will now neutralize that microbe from an infection in, say, a cultured cell. If this produces a positive response, we'll study that macromolecule and figure out exactly what part of that protein is responsible for that neutralizing immune response. So that if we use them as an immunogen, we're only making an immune response to that particular protein. When a molecule proves effective at eliciting a neutralizing immune response, we'll get a company interested in developing it commercially because you have to be able to produce really large amounts of these proteins to use them as a vaccine and then test its immune response to see if it's as potent as current molecules that might be used in a vaccine protocol. So you're basically testing its specificity and its efficacy. Then, the protein would be tested in a second animal model. We would do that in higher organisms than mice. And then once we got a good response in another animal model, we would petition the Food and Drug Administration. Then what they would do is allow us to develop a protocol now. A protocol for beginning multiple phases of testing the still experimental vaccination with human subjects in clinical trials. We would go from phase zero, looking at a small population of individuals for toxicity, to a phase one where we're looking at a little bit larger population maybe we're talking about 40 individuals, to a phase two, which is a little bit larger. And by the time we get to phase three, we're looking at the efficacy and the neutralization properties of that vaccine against other vaccines that are used to maybe neutralize against a similar microorganism. Then can we safely assume that all vaccines have gained approval through clinical trial testing? I'll say in the United States that's true. We've heard stories of other countries that will approve a vaccine prior to having a double-blinded analysis of the efficacy of a vaccine. But in the United States, the FDA is responsible for approving all vaccines that are administered to humans. There are many common diseases that we should be vaccinated for. We receive many of them as children, and we'll learn more about those later when we hear from a pediatric immunology expert. 
But are there vaccines we should receive as an adult? Yeah, there's an important one that you should get at around 50 or 60 years of age, and that's the vaccine to prevent shingles, a derivative of the chickenpox virus, varicella, and it can reemerge as a very serious infection. So that's a good example of a vaccine that's given to the elderly population. Plus, there's always the possibility of new vaccines. And right now, there's a need for a new vaccine to fight the COVID-19 coronavirus. We'll hear about that in a moment. First, how long do vaccinations typically last? It really does vary, but typically we're thinking of boosting at a range of about 10 years or so. It's a little bit pathogen-specific in that some diseases are more childhood-related, so we don't often boost later on in life. But there are pathogens we should be vaccinated against throughout our years, including diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. Those are diseases that can occur from birth to death. Those are vaccines that we routinely vaccinate in the first five years of life. And then about every 10 years, we get a boost because we're sensitive throughout our life to those particular pathogens. And then there's the flu. The flu is really interesting. The flu is a virus that mutates a lot. So every year there's a different flu virus. Which is why every year we need a flu vaccination. Every year we make a different flu vaccine that will protect us against two of the antigens that that virus has that do vary quite a bit in these recombination events. So it isn't that the vaccines aren't protective, it's that the virus changes every year. The good news is research is ongoing to improve flu vaccinations. There are laboratories that are looking at proteins produced by the flu virus that don't seem to change as frequently and would give us the opportunity to vaccinate less frequently since it would be a common antigen in every year's flu vaccine. Considering there could be some level of risk in getting a vaccination, how much greater is the level of risk in not getting one? That's an important perspective in vaccinology. It's very important because it isn't that we've eliminated the pathogens. We've just eliminated the disease in that individual. Case in point. A very sad situation that happened out in Oregon a couple years ago. Young child playing out in the yard and had a serious bruise and parents cleaned it up and the child seemed to be okay. And a couple days later, started to get an achy feeling and their pediatrician immediately recognized it as a case of tetanus. And that young boy was in the hospital several months, at times life-threatening. It turned out that the parents didn't vaccinate their children. So the child received the DTAP as part of the therapy. As mentioned, the world awaits a vaccination for the COVID-19 coronavirus. How close are we to having one? I'm going to defer to Dr. Fauci. He's the premier vaccinologist in the United States. And Dr. Fauci is pretty confident that sometime in early 2021, there will be a vaccine approved by the FDA. And then by the end of 2021, we'll see a good percentage of our population getting vaccinated. And Dr. Barbieri says with multiple vaccinations in clinical trials, it's possible and perhaps necessary to have more than one. COVID is a little bit unique. We need to make a vaccine that is not only protective against those of mid-age, but also our senior citizens. So 
we might see a couple different types of vaccines coming out for approval, and we maybe administer different vaccines for different populations at risk. But even once approved, could availability of vaccines be an issue? Some of these vaccines that are in clinical trials are being scaled up as the trials are going forward. It's a good strategy to develop a large supply of vaccine in a short period of time because the strategy is to continue to make these vaccines stockpile them and see what the clinical trials tell us. It might not be cost effective, but it would be a way of getting a large amount of vaccine out once one has been approved. Is there significant risk in being an early receiver of an approved COVID-19 vaccine? If the FDA approves it, there should be no higher risk to an early receiver than somebody that receives the vaccine later because the vaccine will be approved under a production protocol. So once approved, the vaccine should be very similar for early receivers as well as those that receive it a little bit later. So for now, we wait. But while we wait, Dr. Barbieri says, continue to act responsibly in the meantime. We must remain strong. Our best protection is a mass distance and hand washing. Really simple. If we did that as a nation, the dire situations that we're seeing across the country would be mitigated at a very high level. And then we need a vaccine. And if you're expecting herd immunity to solve our current situation, don't. If you vaccinate enough individuals in a population, those that aren't vaccinated in that population will be safe from infection. Essentially, the virus can't find that individual. The problem is... Relying on herd immunity requires that we are at 80 or 90 percent infected. And to get to that percent infection would result in the deaths of millions of individuals. So it's just not practical for protecting us against COVID. But with the vaccination, herd immunity can become viable because then you vaccinate against the virus and you protect 80 or 90 percent of the population. So you don't want to get herd immunity through the natural infectious process. There'll be just too much loss of life. But to do it at the vaccine level is appropriate. And that's useful because then we can protect those that might not respond well to a vaccination. On top of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're entering into flu season. How important is getting a flu vaccination this year? Very important. And the reason for that is flu looks a little bit like COVID-19. It's really important to get everybody vaccinated against flu so that the first responders won't have to deal with differentiating flu from COVID-19. If we come up with another percentage of our population now coming down with the flu, we're going to really overrun our ability to respond to the COVID-19 infections. Once a vaccine is available for COVID-19, Dr. Barbieri says, get that too. We have three or four vaccines that are being fast-tracked. Any of the vaccines that have been approved by the FDA are safe. And so it's just a matter of time before we really get our hands around this virus. And if we all do... Together, we'll get through 2020 and make COVID-19 history. If we work with public health leadership and we work together as a nation, we can do a really good job of mitigating the infections. So I say don't weaken. Be patriotic and we'll get through this. It's one thing to make the decision to vaccinate ourselves. But what about our children? Is it necessary? Is it safe? 
Dr. Anna Hupler is an assistant professor, Department of Pediatrics, Division of Infectious Diseases and Microbiology and Immunology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. We asked these questions and more when we spoke with her recently. She tells us, on a scale from 1 to 10, how important it is to have your child vaccinated. Oh, it's definitely a 10. Extremely important. And she shares her number one reason why. I'm a pediatrician. I really care deeply about the health of children. So that makes my number one reason pretty easy. And that is to prevent diseases that can cause disability or death in children. There are other important reasons to vaccinate your kids as well. There are a bunch of other reasons. Vaccines can cause infections to be less serious. They can prevent the need for expensive or uncomfortable medical procedures. They can prevent kids from missing school or parents from missing work. Vaccines can protect other people, so they're a good public health measure. But my number one reason is still to protect kids from serious diseases. Then what are some common reasons parents choose not to have their children vaccinated? The most common reason is a misunderstanding about vaccine safety or our motivation for giving the vaccine. And unfortunately, these misunderstandings make really sensational stories. So they play well on social media. They get out into the pop culture and usually just takes a conversation with a pediatrician or a family doctor to reveal the facts and clear up those misunderstandings. Are there a lot of parents who choose not to have their kids vaccinated? It's not extremely common. The majority of kids still get their vaccine. But unfortunately, it's a large enough minority to make me worry for those children as well as worry for the general population. So for some vaccines, we'll have 10 to 20 percent of kids missing their vaccine. There are other vaccines where we could have as many as 40 to 50 percent missing the vaccine. So Dr. Hupler says it's important for all children to get vaccinated eventually. Almost all children should get vaccinated. The few exceptions to that are children with severely low immune systems. And I'm talking severely low, like a child who's recently had a bone marrow transplant. Kids in that situation may not qualify for vaccines for a period of time. But eventually, even those children are allowed to resume vaccines. Okay, so vaccines are important for children, but are they safe? Dr. Hupler says emphatically, Vaccines are safe. They are some of the best studied medicines that exist. There are really rigorous standards vaccines must meet before they're released for public use. And even after that, there's a robust system in place to make sure that these vaccines maintain their high safety record. There is no other substance that we give to children or adults that we track as closely for safety as vaccines. There can be some side effects, but Dr. Hupler says they're very minor. The most common side effects are minor pain at the site of the injection and mild fever that lasts less than a day. And it is true those minor side effects may occur. In fact, that's true with any medication that you would expect a risk of minor side effects. So looking at it from a risk versus benefit standpoint, the benefits of vaccinating your kids far outweigh any risks. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it. The benefit is enormous. Vaccines prevent real diseases, and these diseases definitely harm kids. The main risks of vaccines are very minor, mostly nuisance side effects. There is a tiny risk of a more severe side effect, but if you balance the risk and the benefits, it comes out in favor of the benefits.
She gives an example. The risk of anaphylaxis is 1.31 per million vaccine doses. That means if a million people got a vaccine, one person would experience severe allergic reaction called anaphylaxis. Chickenpox causes 30 deaths per million infections. So if you took that same one million kids and had them catch the chickenpox, 30 of them is going to have a fatal outcome. So on the risk-benefit ratio, it is much more beneficial to get the vaccine. Next, Dr. Hupler lays out for us at what ages children should be vaccinated for what diseases. And she assures us there's science behind it. Children should be vaccinated with our routine childhood vaccine schedule. This schedule has been designed to provide protection to children before the ages in which they'll encounter the infection. So this is not a random order. This is a carefully designed dance to make sure the kids get protection at the right age. The vaccination schedule has multiple phases. The first phase is the baby vaccine, given at two months, four months, six months, and then another set at 12 to 18 months. These baby vaccines protect against infections that can be caught really early in life. So one vaccine that's included in these baby vaccines is the tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis vaccine. The second phase is the pre-kindergarten vaccine. These are all boosters of vaccines that a child got as a baby, and these boosters maximize the likelihood that the child is protected before they go to school and they encounter a lot of different infections. The third phase is the middle school vaccine, and these vaccines provide protection against infections that kids may encounter in adolescence or early adulthood. So an example during this phase would be the meningococcal vaccine. This protects against bacteria that can cause meningitis when kids or young adults are in crowded situations, such as in college dormitories. And there's a relatively newer vaccination during this phase that many parents may not know about, but you should confusing to people because it's one of our newer vaccines, but the HPV vaccine prevents against a virus that can cause infections in kids and adults, but those viruses can also cause cancers of a bunch of different locations in the body. While you may not be familiar with human papillomavirus, or HPV, don't think of its vaccination as optional. powerful vaccine that prevents cancer. And I now do not consider it an option. I think it's a requirement for us to offer this vaccine to kids to allow them this protection at a young age. Learn all about HPV by going back and checking out episode number 63 of our show. You may be wondering, is it really necessary for a child's vaccinations to start so young? We have to start vaccines before the risk of the disease. Thankfully, babies' immune systems handle the vaccines really well. The vaccines don't weaken the immune system. They don't dampen the immune system. Because we have a lot of scientists interested in vaccines, they've even studied this and found that vaccines don't change our general immune response. They just teach the immune system what a specific germ looks like so the immune system is prepared. Okay, but don't infants have natural built-in immunities they receive from their mothers? our infants, except for the extremely premature ones, do get some immunity from their mothers. They get antibodies through the placenta before birth. Babies who breastfeed get additional protection that comes in the breast milk. This immunity prevents a lot of diseases in young kids. But despite these built-in immunities, babies still need vaccinations for a couple of reasons. First, because it's temporary. 
protection goes away by about six months after birth, and almost none of that antibodies from the pre-birth process are left by the time a baby is one years old. And second, because... That temporary immunity from mom only protects the baby from infections the mom themselves has experienced. So if the mom never had hepatitis B vaccine, then she doesn't have that immunity to pass on to the baby. So that's why we want our babies to get their full protection from vaccines. Once kids begin their vaccination schedule, is it the same schedule for all kids? In general, the schedule is the same for all children. This is nice because the pediatricians know exactly what to give a kid at each time, and we don't miss any doses then. But there are some cases where we might have a temporary delay. The most common is in the case of a severe illness. We might delay their vaccine until they've recovered, but then they go right back on the regular schedule again. Haven't we eradicated many diseases in the U.S. already? And if so, why is vaccinating against them still important? infections that are mostly absent in the U.S., but not in the world, which means they're only a plane ride away from coming back. And that phenomenon should be pretty obvious to us now with COVID-19, because we've now seen how quickly an infection can spread in the world. It's really alarming how quickly infection that started in another country can be now in our hometown. Also entering into our hometowns, flu season. Should children be vaccinated for flu? Yes, all children over the age of six months should be vaccinated for influenza. This flu vaccine is especially important for kids who are at risk for severe flu infections or if they spend time with people who are high risk. But all kids should get the influenza vaccine to protect themselves and to keep us from having a bad flu season in our community. What about the claim that those who get the flu shot get sick because they got the flu shot? This is a myth. The flu shot cannot give people the flu. The flu shot in particular does not have the real germ, only pieces of dead germ in there. So the immune system just learns what that germ looks like without having to encounter the whole complex germ. So it can't give you the flu. But she concedes that... It does give some people fever or even a few hours of feeling run down or achy. But these symptoms are due to the immune system responding to the vaccine. Real influenza feels much worse. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues, we're getting closer to having an approved vaccine. Will it be safe to have children vaccinated against COVID-19? confident that appropriate safety testing will be conducted before we have a COVID-19 vaccine approved. I expect that as soon as we know the vaccine is safe in adults, they'll start testing it to see if it's safe in kids. There's a movement in the U.S. of parents who strongly oppose having their kids vaccinated, the anti-vaxxers. Dr. Hupler's message for them? Quite simply, vaccines have saved millions of lives in the U.S. and around the world. We demand and achieve higher safety standards for vaccines than for other medicines. If there's someone out there who has concerns about a vaccine, I recommend that they talk to their child's doctor before completely making up their mind. Sadly, there are many myths about vaccines. Perhaps the most common one, an alleged link between vaccines and autism. I can answer this one quite definitively. There is no connection between autism and vaccination. There was a false connection between these two, and that was due to a fraudulent study that was released in 1998. 
since that time, multiple well-designed studies have shown that there is absolutely no link between vaccines and autism. For parents who are on board with having their kids vaccinated, Dr. Hupler says... Not only are you protecting your own children, you are also performing a great public health service. This prevents the spread of illness to other people. And for dependable, factual information about vaccinations... The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention at cdc.gov. Another is vaccines.gov. And finally, your medical provider is a really great resource. And if you stump them with a really tricky question, primary care providers know how to get in touch with the experts, including my friends, the Pediatric Infectious Disease Group at Children's Wisconsin. We'll post links on our CTSI website, along with the podcast of this show. That's all the time we have for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Joseph Barbieri and Dr. Anna Hupler. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. Make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of this or any of our shows online and on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.